So as machines take our jobs and do them more efficiently, soon the most important work for us humans, if not the only remaining work for us humans, is the kind of work that must be done beautifully rather than efficiently. But how do you do that? How do you work, live, lead beautifully in an age of machines? I'd like to propose three rules. I call them the rules of enchantment, the rules of business romantics that might help you do so. First, do the unnecessary. So I once worked uh, at a company that was the result of a, of a merger of a large IT outsourcing company with 9,000 software developers, mostly based in India, and 1,000 creative types, designers on the West Coast and the US. And to unify these vastly different cultures, we were going to launch a third new brand, and the new brand color was going to be orange. And we were going through the, the budget uh, in the launch plan, and then we realized that there was a budget item, the purchase of 10,000 orange balloons, which we had meant to distribute to all staff worldwide. We decided to cut it because it seemed cute, unnecessary, and as the CFO pointed out, not mission critical. So we cut the balloons, and we didn't know back then that our decision to cut the balloons marked the beginning of the end, that these two organizations would never become one. And sure enough, that merger eventually failed. Now, was it because there weren't any orange balloons? No, not entirely. But the kill the orange balloons mentality permeated everything else. You might not always realize it, but when you cut the unnecessary, you cut everything. To lead with beauty means to rise above what is merely necessary. So do not kill your orange balloons. Like someone who knew this really well, Steve Jobs. I worked at Frog Design for eight years, and I heard all these stories about Steve Jobs because we worked with him in the 80s. And one was that he insisted that the interior of the computers were designed with the same love, care, and rigor as the exterior. He said customers don't see it, but they can feel it. In a time of increased complexity and accelerated change, staying true to your values is perhaps the only sustainable competitive advantage. Business are the great, if not the only remaining meaning makers of our time. And they're also the great socializers, which brings us to rule number two, create intimacy. Now, I've come across a study a couple of years ago that, <laughs> that said that the average American has only one close friend. Now, you can reflect on how many close friends you actually have. And I say this because the numbers have been deteriorating in, in Europe as well over the years. Sociologists speak of an age of loneliness, an age of social isolation. The UK has created a minister for loneliness. And isn't that astonishing, given the fact that we've never been more connected, we've never been more communicative than at this point in history. We check our smartphone 80 times a day on average. So how is that possible? Well, the, the the writer Richard Bach has an explanation. He says the opposite of loneliness is not togetherness, it's not being connected, it's intimacy. And we are in dire need for more intimacy in these digital times. So much so that there are already very strange business models popping up serving that need, like this one in Los Angeles called people walking. So for $30 you can rent a stranger who walks with you for a few miles. It's the, the Uber for humans, if you will. It's sad, but it also points out there's a desire for this. And so how do we design for intimacy and who can we learn from? Artists. Artists are very good at that. Welcome back to the second series of InspireFest, the podcast. 
I'm Anne O'Dee. I'm the founder of InspireFest, which takes place in Dublin every summer over three days. In this series, you get to hear the conversations backstage between Claire O'Connell and Shauna Boyle and some of our speakers. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not come along and meet us in real life in Dublin? Every year we have attendees from about 40 countries. You simply book your tickets at InspireFest.com. It's our fifth birthday in 2019, so we wanted to do something nice for our podcast listeners. So we've created a discount code just for you. Go to InspireFest.com and enter the code InspirePod19. It's time to crack on with this episode, but before we do, I just want to take a moment to thank the Digital Hub for being our anchor sponsor once again for this series of InspireFest, the podcast. The spark for InspireFest grew out of our home here at the Digital Hub four years ago, so it's a pretty fitting partnership. The Digital Hub is based in the Liberties in the heart of Dublin City. It's a collaborative space and it's home to lots of technology and digital media companies. But it's more than just an office. Why not visit thedigitalhub.com to find out more. Now, let's get on with this episode. Hello, I'm Claire O'Connell and in this episode of the podcast, you'll hear my chat with Tim Lebrecht backstage at InspireFest 2018. Tim is the founder and CEO of the Business Romantic Society, and he believes the world would be a better place if we had more romance in our lives and in our businesses. I caught up with Tim backstage at InspireFest to find out why romance is such an important part of business. So Tim, what do you mean about romance in business? What's that about? So, <laughs> romance in business, uh, what I mean by that is, is uh, romanticism, really. So I'm referring to the uh, movement, arts, literature movement of the 18th and 19th centuries. I'm not suggesting that you should fall in love with your colleague or run away with your boss. It's really those uh, qualities and tropes of the uh, romantic movement. And I believe they're needed now because we're in a similar moment in time. They stood up against what they perceived as uh, the regime of the Enlightenment and practical reason. They thought it was too narrow, too reductionist of a view of the human soul. And I believe we're now at a similar moment in time where we're experiencing a lot of disenchantment. So the whole uh, first or the second wave of digital technology has pretty much culminated in a moment of profound disappointment. See Facebook and uh, <clears throat> algorithmic manipulation. And now there's AI. Uh, and this prospect, but also, of course, the the risk uh, that comes with it in terms of uh, automation. And, and I believe the great danger is that we are um, automating ourselves, that we become smart machines ourselves, and that we surrender to the regime of optimizing everything, including very much ourselves. And And romance is really the antidote to that. Romance tries to value what is not measurable, what is not explicit, what cannot be optimized. So it's very it's all the fuzzy stuff. Uh, and I think it's almost like a moral obligation to uphold that. But interesting enough, I believe that these romantic qualities, all the fuzzy areas of our life, are actually what, what is going to differentiate us as humans. So my, my colleague, uh, Gert Leonard, a futurist, always says, if you can describe your job in one sentence, you're probably not going to have one much longer. So if your job, however, is ambiguous and it's fuzzy and has a lot of gray space and it requires a relational, emotional skills, then it needs to be done. It needs to be performed by humans. So romance is is both a bulwark against, um, you know, the basically resigning to, to, to a machine uh, culture. But at the same time, I think it's also what will make us thrive in the, in the uh, labor markets of the future. 
What are you doing to help people build this soulfulness, this romantic romanticism, this kind of these fuzzy bits into into their business plans? So I wrote a book, The Business Romantic, that came out three years ago, just to provide a framework or at least try to introduce the the vocabulary into business again that had been really removed from it. Love and imagination, empathy and all these qualities. I mean, it's really changing, not not because of my book, but I think there is a whole um, choir of people, of voices now um, talking about that. So I think the first thing is really establishing that vocabulary again. Uh, secondly, it's all about building muscle. So rituals are the new habits in a sense. So really encouraging organizations and employees to hack the workplace, to try to meet in a different way, run retreats differently, create spaces where you can be more vulnerable, bring your full selves to work, where you can also show negative emotions, not just the positive emotions that are very often uh, rewarded at the startup workplace, right? It's happiness, happiness, but it's that's not only who we are of course we are also angry we're also sad so we need to create space for that as well so that's the second thing and then I founded the business romantic society which actually started as a joke uh, because in the, in, the, in the last sentence of my book I said well I founded the secret society which is a very romantic feature a secret society why don't you apply and if you're lucky you can become a member of it and then I put my email address in there and then people actually uh, emailed me and then it was 25, 30, 50 and at some point I thought oh you know I really got to do something with this there's interest and then I started hosting dinners um, <clears throat> and, uh, and now turned it into a company that, re that really is uh, advising organizations on how to humanize their cultures and then finally we um, in partnership with other organizations such as Boston Consulting Group, Siemens, um, T-Systems, Gulp we actually host a conference called the House of Beautiful Business, which takes place every year in Lisbon. And it takes place at the exact same summit as Web Summit, uh, week as Web Summit. So it's almost like it's kind of like the small living room salon version of that, where we talk about the future of technology and humanity and, and how to run a business beautifully in the age of machines. Do you ever find that when you go to businesses who are used to sort of, you know, managing what they measure and having their metrics, their KPIs and even, you know, measuring tangibly what impact they're having and what the bottom line is, you know, what, what do they ever push back on this and say, well, we can't do that? Well, that's a default reaction, um, and it has changed. Three years ago, that was very much the default. I was like, yeah, this is all nice, but let's. Th this is an HR topic. Love what you do, do what you love, and it's more in the motivational camp. And parts of, of it are, of course, but it's also in a way I feel like it's more it's more profound than that. Um, I think it is changing. I think organizations are now realizing that the purely quantitative approach where uh, data is the only objective truth and they sort of fall back on that, that's no longer working. Because we've been betrayed by data multiple times. We also realize that data is not sufficient in, in capturing the reality of our lives. You know, there's just more to it, thank God. And organizations that want to remain human are realizing that. The biggest obstacle is fear. Uh, and that varies from culture to culture. Uh, I think bigger organizations are often more fearful. There's a lot of middle management and they have fear of losing face up and down as they have to manage up and down. Um, but I do believe it is changing and I, I know that organizations um, such as Danone, for example, the food maker that allowed employees to co-create their manifesto and really transforming their culture, or Otto, um, the client of ours, uh, a retailer in Germany that, that's really also really undergoing a, a profound cultural transformation. 
Uh, it is really changing, and I, I, I would not have been able to speak at big organizations such as Airbus or so, like very engineering-minded organizations, about romance three years ago. They would have kicked me out <laughs> or would have laughed at it. And now it's not that they're saying, you know, we're going to become a romantic organization overnight uh, or we, we, that that's the, 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 the one paradigm, but they're listening and they're, they're allowing this conversation to happen. Um, and I find this really encouraging. This may be way off beam, but was, is this something that Richard Branson was doing in the 1980s, 1990s? And everybody thought he was, oh, that's just crazy Richard with loads of money and everything. But I always thought he was onto something like treat your employees well and let them sort of develop and empower them. Is, is this basically sort of the same model that you're talking about? Uh, he's definitely a romantic. Uh, if you think of the, the prominent business leaders of our time, then he certainly qualifies. Um, now, he also, of course, uh, in, a, in a sense, had, had the privilege of at some point being able to afford that. But certainly the virgin culture and, and his whole career is, is the epitome of, of romance. But it, it goes beyond that. I wouldn't so much just tie it to one person or, you know, the visionary entrepreneur. I think it's also something that a family-run business can do, that a, a small and medium-sized enterprise uh, can do. And it's just really kind of broadening the playing field, not um, taking efficiency as um, sort of the, the, the standard way of the, your standard modus operandi, actually being able to waste time being able to exhaust yourself as an organization. That's all part of the creative process. That's part of, you know, the part of innovation. That's human. We're very good at wasting time. So if we want like a hyper-efficient organization, it will be devoid of humans in consequence. And, uh, and I think that takes courage sometimes of, uh, for everybody in the organization. Everybody every day has to make a decision between, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but between efficiency and quality. And um, and we can all make these decisions and have the, the courage also to just defy data. Study the data, reflect on it, but then also say, no, but my intuition and my guts are telling me something else. And actually, in keeping with our values or my beliefs, I'm going to make a decision that is actually not in keeping with the data. This is my first time here at InspireFest, and I heard everyone saying it was different and exceptional. But I didn't really believe them because a lot of people say that about a lot of conferences. But I came here and the, the speakers are amazing and they touch on subjects that are very different, uh, like accessibility, LGBTQ, and how to be more inclusive and diverse. And it was really, really amazing. I recommend it. Most conferences drive to have a diverse set of speakers. InspireFest truly does that. You've got people from all different communities on stage. 65% women, which is amazing. Uh, so yeah, I think that's the one thing that really inspires me. I love just the whole variety of different talks on various things. So sometimes there's things just come up that you don't expect, and there's things maybe you weren't expecting to really like, and they were really, really interesting. Well, I keep coming back as a third year. It's a, I love to hear stories and you know how people are making impact. It's very inspiring. It's really, really, really nice just to be in a place that's full of other passionate and enthusiastic people. Um, and I really find that I leave InspireFest with a lot more energy than I came with.